Okay, so, so we are starting our uh, kind of two-month break in Acts. That's not all it is. I shouldn't say that. We're starting the Acts hiatus. That's not true. We're, we're starting a, a series about kind of what we do and how that relates to Acts. So we're talking about this early church and how it's forming and how the teachings that the um, apostles are kind of giving the people are being accepted or not and how they're being viewed or not, how people are viewing outsiders, how people are viewing Gentiles and the Hellenist of this day or whatever. And then, so what, what we're going to do for two months is talk about kind of our acts we do as a church to be a part of that story, okay? And so we'll, we'll be going through discipleship today. Um, we'll have, uh, next week is on worship, and then servants, and missionaries, and evangelism, and prayer, and learners, okay? So that's, that's like our, our series moving forward. Um, and I'll do this one and only one more in the series, which I'm overly excited about because I get to, to hear from everyone else and kind of hear everyone's take um, kind of of how our church does something. Because a lot of times if, if Todd or I is, is talking about kind of what we see as discipleship or servants or whatever, that may be just kind of in theory what we're hoping our church does rather than maybe how we're acting it out. And so I'm really excited to hear from everyone else through the two months. Does that make sense? Awesome. Um, but this week, though, we'll talk about disciples and discipleship. Um, quick, quick disclaimer, I think we've been, or I've been saying from the front, uh, I've been confusing discipleship and discipling each other with teaching each other, and I'll talk about that as we go. But, yeah, that, that's enough of the disclaimer, because we'll go into it as we go. But first, uh, open your Bible to Matthew 4, and we're going to start there. Matthew 4, starting in verse 18, we'll just read through the end of the chapter. Alright, here's, here's what it says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. Now, let's, we, I think, who's actually heard this before? Let's do that. Anyone heard this passage before? A lot of us, right? Most of us maybe have heard this passage. So Jesus is walking just by these fishing boats, right? And he calls these specific people. Now, in my head when I was growing up, I pictured it like he was taking a long walk on the beach or something, like it's empty, like the whole beach is empty, and these two boats are like close to the shore or something, and they're out working, and Jesus is like walking gracefully, you know, or triumphantly or something, and then he calls out to these guys in this whatever voice, and they're stuck in a trance by his words, and they gently put everything down, and they walk off the boat and follow him, right? That's in my head. The reality... That's not probably what it looked like at all, number one, because the boat needed to be at like a port of some kind, and so it's probably very, very crowded. There weren't two fishing boats at this sea. There were many. There were a lot of fishermen. It was a thriving industry at this, in this city, at this town. There's a lot of people. It is busy, okay? It's a, it's a busy place with lots of people, with a lot going on. Jesus makes his way there. And he is, he is, at this time, going to be known as a rabbi, okay? He's, he's 
obviously one, and walks directly up to these. Does anyone know how old they would be? It's going to be a range. You can give me a range. Does anyone know? How old? Yeah, okay, that's, we're going to talk about it. No, that's, that's great. That's exactly what we're going to talk about. Why didn't the dad make the cut? The, there's probably lots of reasons, but there's a for sure one that we'll discuss. They're probably between 15 and 20. That's probably how old they are. They're young. They're teenagers, more than likely, and they could be as old as like 20 to 24 or something, people say, but they're, they're young. They're very, very young. Calls them out, and they leave. Now, again, Zebedee the father needs his sons to help him fish, and they leave the nets they're mending to help their father fish that day, and they just go. And why is Zebedee okay with this? What makes this okay in any, any of our brains in any circumstance? Because that's just not how we think of it. If, if we do, we have to think of it in the strange way of like Jesus walking on the beach and puts them in a trance, and then they go. That's the only way it makes sense to us, right? It's the only way it can make sense. That's why I had it in my head that way. But here's the reality of it. So backing up, and we've talked about this briefly before, so Jewish boys and in some towns Jewish girls would get to go to a school uh, between the ages of 5 and 10. Uh, it would either be at the synagogue or a community center or um, someone's home, a rabbi's home, or, or whatever it may be. But it was usually at the synagogue uh, or in Jerusalem it would be at the temple-ish, right? So they would go to the school. And they're, they're, one of the main things they would do at the school is memorize the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would memorize them. And they don't get to memorize them in a book with like chapters and headings and such. They're in long scrolls that they would pull out, right? You'd have a place, you'd pull out the scroll, you'd unroll it, and you'd begin reading and writing it. You would scribe it, and then you would begin memorizing. And as you would memorize, the teacher at that school, probably, uh, depending on the size of the town, but it would be one of the synagogue rulers or whatever, would be teaching you to, to somewhat interpret what you're reading, but you would be memorizing. That's your job. You would be memorizing. That's what school is. You would learn as you go, obviously, how to treat your father and your mother when you start memorizing that passage, and you would, you would be brought up as this as your education. Now, the, the kids would begin falling away during this time of learning because some kids wouldn't be able to memorize it, right? They, they, for whatever reason, they just may not be apt to do that and to learn in that way, or they may not be the first in their class, the head of their class, right? Or they may need help at home, or they may hate school, or whatever it may be. Kids would start to fall away, and then about 10, there would be this moment that they would have to start a different school. So the ones that had made it, and they've memorized the Torah, memorized the Pentateuch, and had done well, and are starting to show real promise, they would be invited and asked to go to the secondary school. And the other kids, there's nothing wrong with them, but they would say, okay, now go learn your father's trade or go learn a business. Go contribute to society a different way. Thank you so much for learning. I'm glad you have the Torah memorized, but we're going to not invite you to the second stage of schooling. So then those kids, the few, would start memorizing the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of it, the, in the entirety. And they would do that until they're about 14. So it may take four years, maybe five, depending on where the school was or whatever. But they would continue to memorize. And as you're memorizing everything there, you're, again, learning to interpret. You're learning how to apply this to your life. You're learning, um, you're learning extra uh, biblical books. You're reading other teachers' thoughts on these passages. You're reading commentaries, we call them now. But you're reading things other you know, literature has put forward for this, for this Jewish work, 
Okay? And so you'd be doing that, and you'd do that every day, and during that time, kids would start to fall off. Rather, they just can't memorize the entire Bible, which to me, I'm like, fair, fair, man. No shame in that. No shame. Not many able to memorize thousands of pages of onion paper. It's totally cool. No worries. You're a great kid. Go be a fisherman like your father. Go learn whatever else it may be, as your parents do. Go learn to sell cloth. We need someone to do that well. We need someone to be able to buy and sell so we can have the best cloth. And we support you in what we're doing. We're so glad you made it to the secondary school. But you, we're telling you, you're a wonderful kid, but we need you to go do something else. This isn't for you. Having the scriptures be the only thing you know and teach and lead in just isn't for you. Some families might come on hard times and they would need to bring their son out of school so they could begin again fishing or working or farming or pruning figs right away. So they would pull them off from doing that. But a select few, very, 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 very few, might show promise and finish their school at 14. And then what they would do is if they thought they had what it takes and they felt something in them, maybe a burn or maybe they just want it or they're so gifted at it or they just love the scriptures or whatever it may be, they would go and ask a rabbi, usually around 30 or so years old, they would go ask a rabbi, may I follow you? Can I follow you? And then the rabbi, well, here's, here's what they would do. They would say, well, come back tomorrow, come back whenever, and let's discuss. We'll see. If he even wanted to give it thought. The, the kid would come back, and the rabbi and him would begin this process where the rabbi would quiz him relentlessly. Okay. He would ask all about strange, you know, one-time said words in Scripture. Right? He might ask him of this unique interpretation of this one passage that the rabbi, he sees it this way, but another rabbi may see it completely different. And so he wants to know how that student takes it because he wants someone who can really follow him. They even called it, and Jesus says this later, which is really beautiful, the way a rabbi would teach and live is called their yoke. So, again, when Jesus says things like, take my yoke upon you, it is easy, and the burden is light of it, right? It's like saying, take my way of living, take my interpretation of scripture, take my way of walking this, these words, this breath out. Let me show you how to do that. It's called the yoke. And so if you thought as a rabbi that that kid could really take your yoke, you would quiz them relentlessly and really figure out, are they really going to be able to live and teach this way, because I want my way of teaching, my way of, of interpreting scripture, my way of walking through the world with this breath of God, I want it to be carried on when I'm gone. And so I want someone who's going to do that. And they would relentlessly quiz them. And they might, during the middle of that, say, you know what? This kid is great. They're wonderful. They're brilliant. But I just don't think they can take my yoke. I don't think they can be my disciple. And so they would say, look, I don't know how they would say it. Hopefully they would say, <laughs> look, you're, you're lovely. You're wonderful. You do show promise. You should, you should understand what a, an accomplishment it has been to go through school for these 10 years, memorizing the Old Testament, not being called the Old Testament, memorizing our scriptures, <laughs> learning these things. You're wonderful. But your place is to be a fisher. Your place is to make bread for the community. So go enjoy making bread. You can do it with passion. You can do it with love. We need you to do that. 
and then some. Again, a select, select few would go to a rabbi and they would plead, please, can I follow you? The rabbi would quiz them and quiz them and just grill them on interpretation and thought and the way to treat people and how they see God and how they see the songs in Psalms and how they saw these, these, these stories of kings of the past and their lineage and they would quiz them relentlessly and all these things and they would say, you know what? Follow me. And what that kid would do is they would leave everything they knew, their friendships, their circles, their love interest, their family, their parents' job, maybe their town, and they would go and totally and completely, with every sphere of their existence in life, devote themselves to that rabbi's yoke, his teaching, his way, his life. He would walk behind him everywhere he went. He would listen with, like, expectant ears for everything that dripped from the mouth of that rabbi in teaching and would hold it fast. The rabbi would, would help them interpret scripture. And there might be a few. There might be a few with each rabbi. Maybe 12, perhaps. <laughs> right? Do you have a few kids walking around with this 30-year-old who has for, for 25 years devoted himself to one thing? And they would learn everything they could. They would learn how to walk like this rabbi how to speak like this rabbi, how to interpret like this rabbi. They would learn how to treat the world like this. They would learn how to talk with other rabbis and how to debate like this. They would, they would learn, again, to, to continue writing scripture, to continue teaching the scriptures, right? They would do this. They would learn how to treat the trades in their neighborhood like the way the rabbi did. They would see that rabbi counsel marriages. They would see that rabbi circumcise young boys. They would see that rabbi do what, I mean... But basically just everything they do, they would be a part of. And so, so, imagine then how select that is and how beautiful that is. I would, I would imagine it's one of those things where if your nephew became a disciple of a rabbi, your whole family celebrates and is so proud, right? It's more than getting into some Ivy League school. It's more than getting that unique internship in Europe. It's more than whatever else we can imagine because it's, Religious, it's cultural, it's educational, it's everything wrapped up. It's, it's everything. It's their, their norm, it's their character. It's them, their lineage, their history, everything. And so to have someone in your family that would be told by a rabbi to follow them would make a family beyond honored and beyond proud. And so, when Jesus walks up to these young men who did not make the cut, they're fishermen. I don't know if they became fishermen at six, right? Or at 11. Maybe they just asked a rabbi and a rabbi said, no, we don't know that. We don't know how far along in their education they were. But to have a rabbi, a traveling rabbi, that you start to hear that is doing the things that Jesus is doing, walk up to you when you have obviously not made the cut and to tell you, I think you can take my yoke. I think you could be me to the world. I think you have what it takes to learn everything about my way, about my interpretations of Scripture, about the way I think God breathes with his people, about this new thing I'm going to start talking about, the kingdom of heaven at hand. To, to have someone tell you they believe in you to do that would make them drop their nets and leave. Zebedee would be overly thankful 
that his sons, both of them, get to study with a rabbi. And so they begin. And we, we see as they begin, it says this, immediately they left their nets and followed. Going from there, they saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, um, mending their nets and called them. Immediately they leave the boat and their father and follow him. And as he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so his frame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, epileptics, sorry, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So these disciples get to be with a famous rabbi. And right now he's even popular still. No one wants to kill him yet, which is great. They were picked by this rabbi. That is a seriously, we, we, can't, we can't grasp that. There's not anything in our culture like it, is it? I was thinking about it this week and trying to figure out, like, okay, who's the best metaphor? There's not one. There's not. We don't, we don't have anything like that. We, we don't have a political figure that would be equated to a rabbi. We just don't. We don't have religious figures that are. We don't have cultural ones that are. We don't have wise men. We don't have spiritualists. We, we don't have anyone that's equated to our culture and our self and our history like a rabbi would be. And they are asked by him. Again, they don't even go to him. He goes and recruits them. And again, he recruits these misfits, these teenagers who don't make the cut, who have to fish, right? Who may have wanted it and may, maybe they didn't. But it's this beautiful honor for them. And so as they do, that's just important because we have to have the weight of disciples in our heads before we can talk about what discipleship is and what it isn't. We, we have to understand the weight. Because again, to us, I think we take this idea of discipleship as this option, right? It's this opportunity to do if you feel like it, right? If, if Jesus tells his disciples, go make disciples, go do what I did to you, Go and recruit. Go and, and walk up to people and say, follow me with this. Let's follow Jesus together. Let's follow this ultimate rabbi together. Let's do that together. We just don't, we don't have anything that weighs that much. And so it's hard to explain. It's hard for us to get our head wrapped around. But if we could, we would understand that it's not, it may be optional, but it's, we wouldn't take it as an option. So let me read this to you. This is this, uh, Jewish commentary, um, and he said something so intriguing about actually being a disciple that I love. He's just trying to explain. He says, disciples. The English word disciple. Oh, how it fails to convey the richness of the relationship between a rabbi and his Talmudim disciple in the first century. Let me read that again. Oh, how it fails to convey the riches of the relationship between a rabbi and his disciple in the first century. Both itinerant, both itinerant rabbis like Yeshua, Jesus, and the subtle ones attracted followers who wholeheartedly gave themselves over to their teachers. They're not in a mindless way, as happens in some cults. Wholeheartedly gave themselves over to their teachers. The essence of this relationship was one of trust in every area of living. 
And its goal was to make the Talmud, the disciple, like his rabbi in knowledge, wisdom, and ethical behavior. In knowledge, wisdom, and ethical behavior. To give oneself over wholeheartedly to your teacher. Again, we don't have that. Some of us may have had a coach that we really liked growing up. I did. Coach Mars was my baseball coach. He's a, he's a really good guy. But he also, just for whatever reason, loved me, really. Didn't just like being around. Didn't just think I was a, a decent baseball player. No, he just loved me as a person. Very, very much. Would ask me about my life. Would talk to me about my parents. Would make sure my grades were you know, doing this. Would you know, just push me in a way he knew how to make me better in every way. And I loved him. I did. But at night, I went to my house. Coach Mars went to his house. And I listened to my father and my mother. And if they said something different than Coach Mars in life, probably not baseball, but in life, I listened to my father and my mother. I gave myself wholeheartedly to the teachings of baseball from Coach Mars. I didn't give wholeheartedly my views of dating or Coach Mars' views of dating. I'm very glad I didn't. I didn't give fully his views of parenting either. I didn't give myself to his views of how to handle money and how to interpret scripture, for sure, right? It was one area of my life, a very small area. Although I tried to make it bigger than it should have been, it was a small area of our life. And we might have some relationship like that so we can kind of grasp a little bit of the closeness, but we can't. We just can't put our mind around it, okay? And so a few things, though, about discipleship now that I think would be important for us to understand, because of, because of our misunderstanding of what that is and because we don't have anything to relate it to, a few things. Um, and so I, I just have a few things that a disciple isn't, and then kind of the, the opposite of that, what it, what it might truly be. So discipleship is more than memorizing facts and gaining knowledge on a subject or a person. This is where I think a lot of us um, that, that grew up, and I'm not trying to, to separate us as a, a body or whatever, I think a lot of us that grew up going to things like Vacation Bible School and going to a disciple now, if you're in Texas in like 1999, you probably went to those, right, or something, or a summer camp, you know, I know, I know some of us went to church camps, right, and what's usually the goal of that church camp, there's usually like 13 breakout sessions a day, where you're like learning everything about everything, and you can't remember any of them, right, because I wouldn't have made it to 14 in Jewish school of that day. There's no chance I would have been able to memorize so much. And so I'm just supposed to like learn about everything. There's a breakout session on being a missionary, which I didn't even want to be. And so I'm like, I have to go to this. I'm going to act real religious about it. But I don't want to do this. And then there's a breakout session on like not how to have you know sex at 13 or whatever how old I was. And I was like, that sounds fine too at the moment. I don't, I don't. You can teach me all you want about it. I'm 13. That's fine. And then there's a breakout session on like playing guitar, and while that's important to lead worship with, you need to do it with a guitar at that time, and I didn't understand that either, because I can't play guitar. So there's all these things where you're supposed to gain knowledge, right? And as much knowledge as you can gain, the, the idea is, if you can, you can gain knowledge and understand facts and memorize things, surely that will like rub off in some way, right? Like surely you'll hear it in your head, which is, which is partially true. That's not false. It's just the way it was perceived by me. Vacation Bible School, you, you hear the story of Jonah, you sing a song about Jonah, right? And then you do a craft where you put different colors of corn to make a fish, and then you put a little man in it to 
show that you know about Jonah and how to make a Jonah craft with corn kernels, right? So you do all these things to gain knowledge. And that's not bad. I'm not saying that's a bad way. Again, that's what little boys would do in school in this day. As much knowledge on the subject as you can, right? Learning to interpret. Learning what the rabbi or the teacher or the synagogue or whoever it is is teaching you to do. But that's, that's not... It doesn't encompass discipleship. Gaining knowledge on a subject isn't, it doesn't make you a disciple. It doesn't. It makes you really smart about a subject. It makes you be able to be the first one to raise their hand when they ask you questions about Jonah, right? It makes sure you know the songs of the books of the Bible to help you remember what the books of the Bible are, which I don't understand why that was even important that I had to learn and memorize the order of the, I don't know. Anyway, it's not about that. It's not about that. But that doesn't equate to discipleship. And you can try to make it equate to discipleship forever, your whole life. You can try from four years old to 16. And when you're 16 in East Texas and your last name is Evers, you're going to realize that that didn't make you any better. It didn't make you react better to your teachers. It doesn't make you react better to your girlfriend. It doesn't make you react better to your parents. It doesn't make you not fight when you're angry. It doesn't help you in the like dark places of your soul like you thought it would. Jesus tells some um, Pharisees this. He says, you search the scriptures and you know them because in them you think there's life. He says, no, the scriptures witness to me. They give witness about me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he tells them. He says, you think the knowledge that you're trying to equate, you think that the memorization that you want, you think reading everything and being a master on the subject is going to give you life? He says, no, no, no. I will give you... It's a... It's... It's... The avenue from which you will have me. It is the method to receive my life. That's what these are. And so rather than gaining all knowledge on the subject, gain that knowledge as we are with the subject. Does that make sense? It's similar to, and this is not a good example either, similar to Tom going to Spain, taking a class for a semester in Spanish, and then going to Spain and learning Spanish. Very, very different. You're immersed Right? We call it immersion. You're immersed in the subject. You're immersed in the language. You're immersed with the people that only speak that. You, you see it every day. You're around it all the time. That's the difference in a small, small way. Immersing yourself in the kingdom of heaven at hand and studying about the kingdom of heaven that is at hand are very different things. And we would do well to learn the difference in our life. We would do well to. Another thing that discipleship is not is discipleship is not mentoring. Okay, discipleship isn't mentoring, and here's um, what mentoring is: is like the shortest definition ever. But it's to advise or to train is to be a mentor, right? And mentoring is incredibly important. And I think when we talk at church and we say, I think we mean two things when we say we disciple each other at church. I think really what we do is we teach each other or we mentor each other. I think that's more apt to what we're saying. I don't think we really disciple each other. So I'm going to do my best to stop saying it that way. But we teach and mentor each other. And it's very different because a mentor, um, who's had a, actually, who's had a wonderful mentor? 
Anyone ever in their life had a really good mentor? How often did you see them? Right. 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 What about you? Who, who was your mentor? Uh, one of my best teachers was Tom Lucas. Okay. So I saw him five days a week for like two years. How often? How much during the day? An hour during the day, right? Oh, okay. and, and sometime after school, probably, or something. Yeah, you, you would have lunch with Chris Cool. Okay. Anyone else have a really good mentor? Effective mentor? I had one named John Ramirez that Jacob knows. Lives in New York now. Lived in Connecticut. Or lived in uh, uh, Massachusetts at the time when I lived in Connecticut. And I saw him once every other week. And we'd talk on the phone some. We'd email. He's my boss, too, so I had to have some communication with him. But he, he mentored me well and did our wedding. He was a mentor for a long time. Um, and was officiate our wedding, this great guy, right? But here's the thing about a mentor that I think we know. We go to a mentor um, a lot of times because we need advice about a particular thing, right? Or the mentor thinks we need advice about a particular thing, so they'll come to us. That's usually how that relationship works, right? So you're, like, if it's not about a subject, one of mine may be like, okay, look, um, mentor of mine, it, at, in this one part of my job, I need to be better at, you know, speaking in public. Talk to me about how I need to be better at this. What do I need to do to get to, to see scripture and be able to interpret it and explain it to people? What can I do to get better? And he would explain some things to me or he'd talk about it. He'd usually make fun of me a little first and then we would discuss and it'd be great. Or he would come to me and say, hey, see something in your life you need to take a look at. Let's discuss, right? Now, also in mentoring, do you have to do what they say? Really? No. Usually filter it. Especially if you don't like what they say, right? Some of us are very receptive to mentors, and some of us aren't. Some of us, if a mentor brings something to us they see that's missing, we get defensive. We might resent it a bit. And we may say, what do you mean there? And we may ask seven other people that don't know us as well so they can confirm what we want to hear, and then we can not do what the mentor has asked, right? Or we can take it very you know, in a good way personally and say, okay, the mentor loves me, this person cares, they want to teach me, and we decide to take their advice, right? That's how a mentor relationship works. We ask for wisdom, they give wisdom. Discipleship is much, much, much deeper than that. It's much closer a knitted relationship than that. Again, giving oneself wholeheartedly to a teaching is different than asking for advice when we think we need it. This is, I think, for our church, being overly honest, I think this is how we see discipleship. We see it as mentoring or therapy or whatever else we want to call it. When we have a problem, then we search the scriptures maybe for an answer. If we do that, we might just ask someone else's opinion about what the scriptures would say about an answer. And we say well, I'm Jesus' disciple, I should do what Jesus said to do. I have a problem, I want to see what Jesus says about that. Which is good, that's not a bad thing. That's not, you know, awful of us to do. But, what if, rather than waiting until we have a problem in our marriage to see how to, to, to do that with principles that Jesus would teach, 
Or maybe instead of waiting until we are stressed so beyond what our bodies can handle that we're starting to be physically sick before going to Scripture and saying, how do I get peace? Please talk to me, Jesus, about peace in some way. Instead of waiting until that, what if every part of our life, the inhale and exhale, revolved around the teachings, the doings, and the ways of Jesus? What if I didn't think, oh no, I know how to have fun with my son? What if instead of that, I submitted to what Jesus talked about joy and tried to give my son that? What if, instead of thinking that we know how to serve our community well, because we're like, I don't even know that we do know that, but because we may think we're progressive, or we may think we're selfless, or we may think we're whatever, whatever the answer is there. What if instead of like, finding ways and then praying if we should do that thing or not? What if every single part of how we related to the world, every single part of the way we relate to a coworker, our neighbor, our friends, what if all of that was captured up into this full, wholehearted devotion to the way Jesus would do the same? That is discipleship. Discipleship is saying, no, no, I'm not going to assume I know anything anymore. I will assume I know nothing about the kingdom of heaven at hand unless it is whispered to me. I won't assume I know how to be a good husband for another minute unless I see and hear the principles given to me through the scripture and through the Holy Spirit into my life right now of how that needs to work. That is being a disciple. Jesus and his way is not a mentorship program for us. It's just not. We don't come here for therapy. Those things are important. Therapists and mentors, incredibly important. Have been wonderful for my life, too. I'm not not downing those in any way. That is just not what we are called to here. That's not what the kingdom of heaven at hand is. Never has been. When Jesus tells his disciples that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and some violent ones may take hold of it, Right, This idea of some that are desperate and passionate and blowing through life, trying to grasp onto the kingdom of hand, those people are disciple type of folks. They are, they're desperate for the kingdom of heaven at hand. You know, treat it like a, a, a mentoring program for them. And they need help. Hey, does the kingdom look like this? I think I'll do that. Does the kingdom look like this? I don't like that answer. I want to find a different interpretation of what the kingdom of heaven may look like so I can do that. Fits my He's also better, right? And then also the true discipleship is not this coming and going, okay? So again, disciples of this day would follow their rabbi closely. Um, There's a video I watched in college that like haunts me. I watched it again this week. But um, there's a video talking a little bit about discipleship. It's, it, it, it's, it's all about discipleship. It's very interesting. It's a short video. It's real great. But at, the, at one part of the video, it talks about this common saying that, that towns would say about disciples when they would go through with a rabbi. And they would, they would hope well for the disciple. They would want them to do well. They would want the disciple to succeed. They would want them to make it and become a rabbi too. Right. So what they would tell them is they would say, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. And what that would mean is like you would, it's, it's this idea, this visual picture of following someone so closely and so like 
you know, so intently that whatever's on their feet would get on your clothes, right? So, like, if sometimes our sons, if they're nervous or uncomfortable in a situation, they follow us so closely that they trip us, right? Because they're just on your heel. I remember I would go with my dad places, and if I was uncomfortable, I would just take his shoes off the whole time on accident, just stomping on his heel, you know? And he was kind about it, but that's the way it would work, right? And so if the rabbi stepped on something, it would splash onto you. The rabbi is kicking up dust. It's all on you. And it's this idea of this constant closeness of proximity, this, this constant closeness of being so wanting to know your rabbi so well that you're just in his business so much that your clothes are dirty with things from his feet. That idea. So you say, may your clothes be dirty with the dust of your rabbi or something like that. It's this, this phrase that's beautiful and then I'm botching, right? But that's what they would say. And, and discipleship is that. It's not a coming and a going. People wanted it to be. They asked Jesus, hey, can I please just go bury my father first? My father's old. Can I just wait and take care of him until he passes? Then I'll, then I'll get close. I want to be one of those 12 what did Jesus say? No, no, a disciple. I am the father and the mother, right? In fact, you you must love my closeness so much that it seems to the world that you have neglected your father. You've neglected your family, that they are no longer what you love. Get my dust on your feet or on your clothes, right? It's this idea of, of leaving behind things, right? He tells another no, 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 you have to just sell all your things. You have too, you have too much holding you. you. You have anchors all about you. You carry too much weight. Go release that weight. Take on my yoke, right? Sell your things. Come with me. Be, be dusty from my feet. Let's go. Come with me now. And what happens? He goes away sad. He can't be a disciple. It's not for him. He doesn't want to leave those things. The other one didn't want to leave his father, right? He doesn't want the dust from the rabbi's feet. And that is, that is what is so difficult for us as well. This idea of constant proximity. This idea of constant withness. Not just that God is with us, but that we are also with God. Because God has said, what? He doesn't leave us, forsake us. Where we are, there he is in the midst of us. Right? It's a tabernacling God. Tabernacles among us, the Holy Spirit does. This idea of like... It, it resides with us. It, it churches with us as we go kind of idea. It communes with us. I'm making up a bunch of words now to try to explain this. Withness, that's not a word I'm sure of it. I don't know. But that understanding also needs to be from us. We need to practice a withness with our rabbi. A, a constant proximity of closeness. A constant on our mindness. That's <laughs> terrible. A, a constant of that, whatever that word is to describe that a little better. That has to be our, our norm and our common and our always. It has to be. And so to us, when we say it is a value for the Church of East, it is one of the most important things to us to be disciples and to disciple each other, what we should mean is this. It should mean that we, when we look at each other, we say, Come with me, let us learn to be dusty from our rabbi. Come with me, let's go. Let's learn how to practice withness right now. 
Let's forego our mentoring program we were part of with Jesus. Let's forego our options of being able to listen or not. Let's forego this advice column we read every week from him. Let's actually follow together. Come with me. Let's disciple each other by being discipled by our rabbis. Let's go. Let's do this together. That is what we should mean. When we are restore groups, when we are creating disciple makers, right? When we are listening to Jesus and Jesus says, go and make disciples, that is what we must do. That is, that is it. That has always been the call. It doesn't just change because it's 2018. We, we must figure out a way to be fully devoted and fully just captured by our rabbis doing, teaching, and wisdom. To enjoy it and to follow it and not wait until we need it. But let it be constantly around us, constantly with us. That is discipleship in a small way, 20-minute discipleship way, right? That is what we mean. That's what we should mean. That is what I will try to mean. So, let's pray about that. We'll have communion together. We'll be, yeah. Okay, one song. All right. So what we'll do is immediately after uh, saying our liturgy response and saying the Lord's Prayer, let's go have communion and then worship in one song. Okay? We'll stand together. One song usually means it went really long. Oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. No, no. <laughs> I apologize. All right. Let's, uh, I know what that means. Like, okay, I apologize. Okay. So let's do this. Um, as we take communion, again, that was, they did that with Jesus. Jesus said, this is my body. This meal we have together every year at this time, this Passover feast we enjoy that you know. This is now different. It's now my body. It's now my blood. Enjoy it. You're one with me in taking it, right? And so as we take communion, this, this idea of discipleship, let it be forefront to us.